Good morning. Hopefully you enjoyed that song. I love that. Glory be to God alone. Amen and amen. Well, as many of you are aware, today marks the day of the start of a new series. Not that we're disappointed that we're leaving the book of Philippians. Hopefully that was just as challenging, just as encouraging to you as it was to me. That being said, today we start a series in the last book of our Old Testament. The prophet Malachi is not as colorful as some of the other prophets, but oh, the application is so, so sweet and just as appropriate for us even here today. The original warnings and challenges given to the people of Israel were very intense. And we will see that from an overview perspective here today. But, His unconditional, infinite love for His covenantal people is just as intensely displayed within this book. As committed believers in Christ, we're always seeking to rightly handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. With that being said, our desire to know the original author's single meaning for the original audience is always essential and primary. Nevertheless, what good is there in knowing that one single meaning without seeking to apply it to our lives? You recall in the book of Philippians, we talked about dwelling and learning righteousness, but then practicing righteousness as well. I'm convinced, after spending much time in preparation for this study, that this book will provide a wide array of principles and applications for us when it comes to practicing righteousness, applying righteousness. In seminary, I had an Old Testament professor that decided to set an example for us. He proceeded to take a literal Bible and begin to rip pages of the Old Testament out of that Bible. Now, many of us were aghast at the disregard for the Scriptures. Although, an important point was clearly demonstrated by his illustration. He desired to showcase that many believers, unfortunately, this is how they would, in essence, treat the Old Testament. In the case of Malachi, this book is about 2,450 years old. But as I stated, the application is still so appropriate for us here today, and we'll see more of that. So profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped and complete for every good work. Allow me to illustrate a 21st century 
bridge of application to demonstrate that. And does the world today struggle with a cynical spirit as we at times refuse to wait upon the Lord to renew our strength? Does it seem as though believers, in many cases at times, are growing more and more cold-hearted in their relationship with God? Perhaps some of them, God is just dividing the wheat from the chaff in order that true believers are coming to the forefront. But even all of us, to some extent, wrestle at times with our relationship with God as we struggle with the flesh. And what about uh, leadership within the church? The downgrade is functioning at a warp speed as many within what is orthodox Christianity tend to accept and receive more of the winds of culture rather than the authoritative word of God. What about the sad state of marriages and that half of them end up in divorce? I could go on with the ethical and moral decline that we all are very privy to, especially even within this month of June. The neglect of self-sacrificial giving All of this to say, the prophet Malachi was sent by God to address many similar circumstances within the context of ancient Israel. He was sent by God to warn the people of their disobedience, to call them to repentance and obedience. Now, from a positive perspective, We also see an overarching theme within this book, which is one of the reasons why, in the providence of God, I've chosen to preach through this book. The fact that God is faithful and that his unending covenant love will never be forsaken to his people. However, we'll also see That in that faithful covenantal love, he desires obedience from his people. This is certainly not a book within our culture that would perhaps set up the false idea of easy believism. You've heard me mention that term before. There are strong challenges and strong warnings undergirded by the faithfulness and the covenantal love of God. It will enable us to secure hope and an affirmation, not based upon works, but upon those, as we will read here shortly, that fear God and esteem His name. Our question for this introductory overview, and that's what this message will be, an overview of the book as a whole before we start our detailed exposition, will be how might we experience God's blessing? 
We'll briefly look at the structure of the book, which is important for us to understand, the historical background to the book, and several key arguments that the prophet utilizes to challenge the nation of Israel. Would you stand with me, please, as we read one of our key verses in the book, Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before them for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. Powerful, powerful indeed. You may be seated. For the nation of Israel and even for us here today. So, In regards to the structure of this book, that structure is argumentative in nature. Why is that important for us to understand? It allows us on the front side of this exposition to fully appreciate what the communication was intended to do, how it was intended to function. The prophet will use a series of six different arguments throughout the book as a whole. When we come to these sections, you will see that an initial charge is given against the people. The people will respond, and then a response will be given to their response. Now, there's one other fascinating structural element found throughout this book. There are only 55 verses found within the book. That enables me to maybe preach for about six months. Just kidding. I mentioned already that it would be a couple months. But of the 55 verses within this book, 47 of them are written in first-person addresses from the Lord himself. The prophet, of course, is the mouthpiece of the Lord. But throughout this book, very little is said that is not directly from the Lord himself. This is very significant in that it demonstrates the level of concern that the Lord has for many of these topics that we've already even addressed. It's my prayer that this study would in turn increase our sensitivity to these topics. Increase our desire to be just as deeply concerned about many of these arguments. So, what about the historical background? I mentioned, we know that this book was written right around 2,450 years from today. It would not be wise for us to jump right into that timeline without understanding the historical context around it. Let's take a moment just to set the stage. Whether it's Genesis chapter 15 in 
the Abrahamic covenant. There's 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant. Or Jeremiah chapter 31 in the New Covenant. Unconditional promises given to God for his people. The nation of Israel were always based upon these promises, looking forward to divine blessing to come. Land, seed, blessing, a king, a law that would be written upon their hearts. All of these motivating indeed. Nevertheless, and unfortunately, we know from the pages of Old Testament history that this motivation was often marred by disobedience and misinterpretation of these promises. It was this disobedience and misinterpretation that contributed to much judgment and suffering for the people of God. From the beginning, God declared in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that if they were not obedient in the statutes and the callings that God had proclaimed to them, cursing was to follow. Part of that eventual cursing would be the eventual destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 B.C. and the exile of God's chosen people. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, the prophet foretold that the king of Babylon would make waste of their land, bringing them into captivity for 70 years. Second Kings chapter 25, we hear of that king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who burned the temple to the ground. The lack of hope and despair would have certainly been on display. And yet, then, following the defeat of the Babylonian Empire by the Medo-Persians, 70 years to the date after the sacking of Jerusalem, the Persian king, King Cyrus, decreed just as the prophet foretold that the people of Israel could return to Judah. Can you imagine what they must have felt? The excitement that perhaps God is bringing to fruition what he has promised. The first group of exiles returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And we see that in Ezra, chapters 1 through 6. And this led to the rebuilding, the beginning of the rebuilding of that temple that was destroyed. Exactly 70 years from the point of its destruction. The beauty, the excitement, the amazing nature of the divine word of God. However, along with this intense excitement that must have been felt as they returned to their homeland, only soon would that excitement be replaced with impatience, and spiritual apathy. Once again, a misinterpretation or a lack of patience, if you will, 
for the providence of God and how these promises would come to fruition in the years to come. Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the governor, Haggai and Zechariah the prophets would all speak to these people, challenging them to return to obedience to the Lord. Through the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, the temple would be completed. Now, approximately 100 years after the return to the promised land, the priests and the people alike once again had become hard-hearted, apathetic, callous, impatient in their worship of God. Enter onto the scene the prophet Malachi to preach this unconditional covenantal love of God. While also to preach repentance and obedience that they might return to God. And to finish his message, and we will see when we get there, briefly speak on it today, with an ultimate affirmation of hope still to come. With that context set, let's jump in to a brief overview of the six arguments that Malachi used. I've listed these arguments from a positive perspective in order that we might answer that question, how might we experience God's blessing in our lives? As we just discussed, the Jews during this time were in many respects not embracing these arguments. Hence, the lack of blessing and the lack of hope. The first argument is simply God's love. God's love. Right from the beginning, we see the extent of God's love on display for his covenantal people. And we'll see this theme throughout the book. Look at Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Can you imagine being a Jew during this time, aware of their magnificent history and provision, and saying, how have you loved us? Seems absurd on the surface. How can the continual deliverance, provision, and blessing not be enough? Not to mention, as we just read, and as the prophet declares, God chose them while leaving the rightful firstborn Esau to judgment. You know what? If we're honest, 
we too understand this temptation towards a distrust at times of God's love. Why do many believers at times even struggle with assurance of salvation? This side of the cross, as we look to the promise of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we can repeat these words, listen to them, as intimate and as personal as possible. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. If we are in Christ, you can say those very words like they mean, they're meant exactly for you, and they are. Praise God. Or what about the comfort concerning the certainty of God's love for us? In the same way that God chose Israel, He chose you. We'll see next week how Paul himself actually quotes this passage to communicate this great encouragement. All of this being said, the post-exile period for the nation of Israel was in many respects a very discouraging period. Whether the promises of Haggai and Zechariah or even the prophet Isaiah, these people were looking forward to a messianic restoration of blessing. And yet, Unfortunately, we'll see throughout these expectations were found severely lacking. Why was this the case for them? Why is this the case at times for us? In our mess message next week, we'll start to unlock the door concerning the unconditional love for his covenantal people. Moreover, how that enables us to embrace the blessing that coincides with that acknowledgement. God's love throughout this prophet, throughout this book, will be immensely abundant for us to see. The second argument is God's honor. God's honor. In this second argument, the intensity of the challenge certainly begins to ramp up. Look at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Listen to the words of Yahweh. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. Perhaps some of us 
at times have struggled when it comes to reading books such as Leviticus or Deuteronomy. I would challenge you that the next time that you do so, try and appreciate the amount of details that are conveyed when it comes to people worshiping and honoring God in a rightful manner. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we read about a proper priestly perspective beginning with Levi. Verses 5 and 6 read, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Now, of course, we all understand we are no longer under the Levitical priesthood in this church age. However, what principles will we see throughout this study in examining the Lord's rebuke of disobedient Israel in the areas of God-honoring worship? May we find in this study a renewed desire and sense for spiritual maturity, not just amongst those in whom God has called to lead, but in the body as a whole. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that this will serve as a means to protect us from being carried along by every wind of doctrine and trickery of man. In Malachi's account, the, the, the worship of God had become complacent and half-hearted. Let us pray together in preparation and anticipation and excitement that God would use this study, challenge us to honor Him as the name above all names the name in which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. To live a life, as 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, that whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Our third argument, or Malachi's argument, will be God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness. In considering the faithfulness of God, how can we not be driven to be faithful ourselves in order that we might embrace the blessings of God? When we think of such a great salvation that we have been given, the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 ring so triumphantly clear. Listen to these great words of God's faithfulness for you, O child of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. 
Hallelujah. God is faithful. He will bring it to pass. Faithlessness. Or perhaps an even better translation of treachery is what the prophet Malachi encounters. Look at Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer rewards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And we mentioned in the introduction the unfortunate statistic that nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. Within this section in particular, when we get there, we will be challenged in the area of God's concern for his covenantal faithfulness concerning the covenant of marriage. Paul Washer is often quoted as saying, there is no greater demonstration of your love for God in the demonstration of your love for your spouse. When the doors are closed and the home is free of observers how do we demonstrate our pursuit of God through our unconditional love and pursuit of our spouses we'll see how the prophet utilizes this same reality as a means to demonstrate the people's utter disregard of God's faithfulness We desire to experience the blessing of God in our lives. Will we see the principles of God's faithfulness as essential even within the marriage covenant? Malachi will clearly detail the consequences of judgment for a life that deals treacherously with the wives of their youth. However, as we progress through this book, we'll also be reminded that even in our disobedience, which each and every one of us that understand the covenant of marriage and are in the covenant of marriage understand our disobedience. Us as men that at times fall short in loving our wives as Christ loved the church. Or the wives here that at times fall short in submitting to the husband as unto the Lord in everything. We understand the disobedience as we wrestle still with the flesh. However, even in that disobedience that we will see the prophet address with the nation of Israel, we will also see once again that God is faithful. 
And his steadfast love for his people will never fail. That is an encouragement for us in our battle with the flesh, in our relationships with spouses. As for the nation of Israel, 400 years of silence was about to be on the horizon. But Christ was still coming. As for us, looking back to Christ and still looking ahead to his second coming, let us be found practicing repentance and obedience and faithfulness whether in application through our marriages or in preparation for his kingdom still to come. This book will indeed serve to strengthen us in this worthwhile endeavor. The fourth argument is God's justice. God's justice. Now when one often thinks of justice often a certain question arises, often with unbelievers, but at times even with believers. How can a good God allow for evil to exist? Or why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? From a grander perspective, the question misses the significance of what God's word teaches concerning mankind in general. We'll see more here when we examine God's electing love in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1 next week. And nevertheless, Malachi addresses this topic with his fourth argument. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil and good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, for where is the God of justice? Do we, even here today, question or even complain about the seeming lack of God's justice? A justice that seems to be under the reign of wickedness and perversion, debauchery? Do we at times sound like an echo chamber when it comes to the words of the prophet Habakkuk? In chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, when he said, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. How long, O oh Lord? I've been there. I know many of you have been there. As for Israel, 
They would hear of God's certain justice through a purifier to come. One who would never change. One who would bring righteous judgment. And one who would bring loving deliverance to his people. And as for us, that purifier has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us pray that we might be strengthened in this study to resist the temptation to complain. In contrast, might we be a people driven to pray at all times and to not lose heart? In Luke chapter 18, verse 7, Jesus said the following concerning praying at all times concerning God's justice. To not lose heart, he said, Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Let it never be. He is faithful. He is just. He is loving. Last week, we discussed Paul's final encouraging farewell in the book of Philippians. In that passage, we looked at the encouragement of practicing generosity. In the fifth argument, it just so happens as providence would have it. This encouragement of generosity continues. Fifth argument is God's provision. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, in a similar vein as what we discussed last week, I must briefly say that this is another verse that at times is often misinterpreted. When we get there, we will spend a considerable amount of time explaining it, expositing it. And that being said, each of us, after receiving Christ, if not before, more than likely have heard of this word, tithe. We will see that their protection and blessing, the nation of Israel, were directly linked to to their obedience with the tithe. However, does this word tithe and all that it entails still apply to us here today in the church age? That protection and blessing that was linked to the obedience of the nation of Israel, perhaps that sounds a little familiar to what we discussed last week concerning the sowing and reaping principle. 
However, once again, does this passage, that's the question that we will eventually answer. This Old Testament passage conveys some type of promise, keyword, from God concerning our abundance of blessing and our protection as the prophet speaks to the nation of Israel, or do we simply derive principles concerning giving? We've already established the importance of practicing generosity. We see that throughout the scriptures. Nevertheless, I'm convinced, especially when we get to this section, that this exposition will continue to challenge us and our ability to examine our own hearts and how we might give of our own hearts abundantly unto the work of God in His church. So, to review the five previous arguments we just looked at, God's love as the overarching theme throughout this book, God's honor, God's faithfulness, God's justice, and God's provision. Once again, coming back to our question, we look at these things, hopefully the challenge from a positive perspective, in order that we might experience God's blessing, provision, peace. Let's briefly turn our attention to Malachi's final argument. And I've titled this one, God's Sovereignty. Follow along with me in chapter 3, verses three through fif- um, 13 through 15. 13 through 15, chapter 3. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. In this final argument, once again, we see a resemblance to the people's questioning of God and his justice. How can God be in control as we feel as though serving him is nothing but vain work? How can God be in control when it seems as though the wicked prosper? We see throughout the pages of Scripture, God's control is often not seen. And His hidden providence is always working things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, according to the counsel of His will. When we're able to come to terms like this and acceptance, an affirmation of God's sovereignty, tremendous peace and comfort and blessing most certainly unfolds. 
in this book, many will find strength and comfort in God's sovereign love for his people. Or the certain promise found in chapter 4, verse 2. God indeed loves his chosen people and he is certainly returning. In a message with significant warning and challenge, the nation of Israel would have certainly found hope in the prophet's final words. Words that we will see affirmed the sovereign plans of God's as certain and true. A kingdom still to come. Just as was promised, as we alluded to in the introduction. A kingdom where the law of God will be written upon their hearts. A kingdom where Christ will sit on his Davidic throne. It's certain, it's true, it will come to pass. As we close this introduction, we too can find blessing in God's control of history. As we quote from the beginning of our Lord's Prayer, a prayer that even the elect of God during Malachi's time will one day experience along with us. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We will experience that prayer one day. A kingdom here on earth with Christ on the throne. Praise the Lord. For his precious word. Praise the Lord for the book of Malachi and that message to the nation of, nation of Israel, which still even today applies to us. Would we pray together, anticipating, preparing our hearts that God might use this study to renew our minds? to transform our minds, that we might be a people embracing the love of God, embracing the faithfulness of God, honoring His name above all names, living and understanding the justice of God, living out a life of generosity as we embrace the provision of God, resting in the sweet, sovereign control of God. That is my hope and prayer for us as we dive deeper into this book. Let us prepare our hearts for that. Bow with me in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this word that you penned through the prophet Malachi, 
nearly 2,400 years ago that even today rings loud and clear when it comes to application for us. Lord, help us to look to your word as a dividing truth that cuts down deep, a word that sanctifies us, as you say, Lord, in John chapter 17. Prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive of this message that you gave to your nation, your people of Israel, but yet still you desire to speak to us today. Lord, I pray for your people, the church here at Miriam Christian Chapel. We pray together as one body, united soldiers for Christ, that we might be found faithful and obedient, a people who fear you and esteem your name. In Jesus' name we pray.